Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. If you have a Bible, open to that, or follow along on the screens behind. Revelation, chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This ends the reading of God's word, and at this time, children ages three to kindergarten can be dismissed to the little landing. Good morning, faith family at the landing. What a privilege to worship the Lord together, is it not? And to sing great songs to him in concert together. Let's bow before the Lord as I ask for his help as we unfold Revelation 3, Christ's word to Philadelphia. Father, I thank you for this passage that Tom just read. I thank you for the privilege we have to worship you over it and by it. I pray that you would instruct me and us through this passage, use a broken sinner like me and rally gathered sinners like us to come into your presence and be sanctified, strengthened, blessed, healed, helped, and sent by this passage. Achieve thousands more things by Revelation 3, 7 through 13 than I could ever ask or imagine. Magnify your glory. Strengthen your church. Set your approval on us today, Lord. Through this passage, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. The hardest question to answer for many thoughtful persons across human history is, why in the world, if there's a God, does he let such rotten things happen to good people? Why is suffering such a normal experience in this world? If it's God's world and he runs it as he says he does, why is it that people experience such difficulty? Why do our bodies seem to betray us and turn away from us and seem to tempt us in ways that lead to pain and destruction? Why is it hard for faithful spouses to endure challenging marriages? Why do churches that preach the good news find themselves persecuted? Why do children get sick and die? Why do wars happen? Why does disease course through populations and our bodies and take our lives? And our dignity. 
If God is God and this is his world, why do bad things happen? Every religion, every philosophy, every person with an ounce of self-reflection and insight into reality has posed and struggled with that question before. The question takes many forms. Christ steps forward into a little tiny fledgling church called the Church at Philadelphia today in our passage that Tom just read. And it's like he takes the church as a child in between his hands and he aims the cheeks of this little child church up to his face and he says, I'm going to tell you why life is hard. And it's going to stay hard. And I'm going to prepare you for it. Christ treats Philadelphia as if it's a precious little church that has been faithful, and he has no rebuke for this church. I, I think about like the way Christ does to Philadelphia about the landing in the same way. I think about this church with no rebuke. I would love for this church to feel so loved and encouraged and blessed by the Lord today that you can't find words at how overwhelmingly sweet is his approval in your life as a church and as a person. I see in Jesus' words to the church at Philadelphia a summing up of all the glorious things in the gospel. Everything that you love about Paul and John and the gospels and the Old Testament and the Psalms, I see it all alluded to in this passage. I could preach three or four sermons out of Revelation 3, 7 through 13 and not exhaust it because it's so good and it's so full. It's like the Lord Jesus says, I have a private and a personal word I want to say to the church at Philadelphia. You've been through a lot. You've been lied about. You've been beat up. You've been persecuted. You've been mistreated. And I'm coming to you to walk among you and your lampstand. And I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to prepare you for the future. It's a personal, almost like a private word. It's almost like we get to listen in as to how it would have been for this letter written by John after his vision on the island of Patmos, then distributed to Asia Minor. It would go to all the churches. But it was a holy moment, an intimate moment, almost like a, like a moment where in, in a swing in the summertime out in the backyard, Christ is on a gentle swing, and he throws his arm around a child named the church at Philadelphia, and he says, can we talk? But it's not just for the church at Philadelphia. You remember verse 13. This is the way all the addresses to each church ends. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is going out to all the churches, and all the other six churches are hearing what Christ says to Philadelphia. They're supposed to hear it. It's a public word spoken in a private way. And not just the churches in Asia Minor, but the churches before them and after them and since that time and the churches now and this church and all the churches that will establish and exist until Christ returns, we're all supposed to hear this word from Revelation 3, 7 and 13. And we're supposed to feel like the Lord of glory is speaking privately and intimately with me and with us right now, saying these sweet things to us. He has no rebuke for Philadelphia, but only comfort and encouragement. Philadelphia was a tiny church inside a tiny city called Philadelphia, named because two brothers, two ancient brothers, about 180 years before Christ, had established the city, and they 
had given it the name Philadelphia because they were brothers who loved each other. It was a Greek city. It loved its Greek theater and its stadium Olympic sporting events and the celebration of receiving the wreath as the crown for the best athletes. There was an earthquake, as you remember, in this region about 17 AD. Jesus was about 17 years old. And the same earthquake we talked about last time also affected this nearby city of Philadelphia. So much so that so many of the buildings fell down and became such a danger that people stopped living in large, dangerous, vulnerable buildings and they moved out to become farmers and vine growers. Wine became the most common and best a grown crop in the region around Philadelphia, and they became worshipers of the Greek god Dionysus, the god of wine and of revelry. Rome, in turn, came along and saw the value of the, of the city of Philadelphia and gave them money and, and resources to rebuild Philadelphia like it had for other cities. And they then took influence and control over Philadelphia. And there was also a legal sanction from Rome that the Jews could have a synagogue and they could worship. So there's Philadelphia, just thriving with all its wine-tasting parties and all its events and all its sports and and all of its Greek culture and, and two brothers who loved each other who started this great city. And aren't we just great? As long as we could just keep those nutty, bonehead, irrational, mentally retarded Christians from bothering us. They're incestuous. They keep talking about marrying in the Lord a brother or a sister. They're cannibals. They eat the Lord's table, his body and his blood. They're atheists. They will not worship all the gods that we enjoy that have given us all this. We have nothing but disdain for them. And the Jews then would say, and they have no place inside our synagogue. They have no place in the line of David. They have no place in the true Israel. We shut our doors to those Christians. That's how pure we Jews are. Christ comes to this beleaguered church at Philadelphia and he says, I want to remind you, who I am, who's talking to you. I want to remind you who you are and how I think of you. And then I want to give you four promises. First, he says, look at who I am, the one speaking to you. Verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Here's Christ taking to himself the titles given to God. God is called the Holy One. God the Father is called the True One several times in the Old Testament. And there can only be one because it says Holy One and True One. How can he, Christ, take those unless he is in fact one with God? And indeed he is. He's claiming to be God here. This is Christ fulfilling what he gave to us back in chapter 1 when he said, look at my long robe with the golden sash. That means I'm the high priest before the Father always. I have a head of snowy white hair. That means I'm the ancient of days, none before or after me. I have eyes like flames of fire, meaning I see all things visible and invisible. So I am the Holy One. There's only one of us, but he's the Holy One, and I'm the Holy One. And oh, by the way, the Spirit is the Holy One too. We are the true one, not ones. The true one. 
and the Holy One. One God, three persons. Mind blown. Jesus says, I am God speaking to you, and as God, I have all power to open and shut the doors to access to God that I would open and shut. That's what he means by saying, I have the key of David. It's a reference to Isaiah 22. Listen to this Old Testament passage. It's the background of Christ claiming to have, as God, the key of David. He has the authority, as it were, to welcome all whom he will through the door into access and the presence of God. Prophesying about a man named Eliakim, who is a forerunner of Christ, the Lord says through Isaiah, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilakiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. There it is. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. That's what Jesus quotes here about himself. He's the one standing at the door of heaven, and he says, if I want you in, I open the door, and nobody closes the door on you. Precious little church at Philadelphia. I don't care what they did at the synagogue against you. I don't care what they do at the pagan festivals or at the stadium or in the halls of of civic government or at the parties that you got invited to, but they found out you were a Christian and they slammed the door on you. None of those doors will be closed because I am the one who opens the most important door, the door to the presence of God. And I'm the one who shuts it. And when it's shut, no one opens it. There was no opening of the side door of the ark after the rain had risen so high. And the Lord instructed Noah to close the door. There was no reopening of that door. The one speaking to Philadelphia is the one who runs the world and he holds the key of David and he determines and rules over the world. Settle it in your heart just now. Jesus Christ is Lord over the world. Jesus Christ is Lord over heaven and earth and doors passing between the two. The door is none other than the welcome of the gospel and Jesus Christ is Lord over his own gospel. Set all your doubts aside. Doubt every doubt. Disbelieve all unbelief. Question every question and settle it in your heart. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what the people of Philadelphia hear first. Then he tells them, here's how I'm talking about you. Here's how I think of you. Here's who you are, Philadelphia. Verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door and then no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So here's the God of all glory, the Holy One with the key of David, speaking to the weak but faithful Philadelphia church. The weak but faithful. This is what Christ wants in us. Weak. He wants us to boast in our weakness. Because in boasting in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. He says, be faithful As you have been faithful, be faithful, Landing, as you have been. Well done. You've kept my word and not denied my name. I know your works. Remember, I have eyes like flames of fire. I'm the holy one, the true one. I see all things. When you declined a promotion or a job raise for increased money, That would have required you to sell a piece of your soul. I saw that. I know your works. When you clicked online for righteousness and not for sin, I saw that, says the Lord. 
When you held your tongue when you knew a fact that would make someone else look bad if it was spoken, I saw that. I saw that and I approve. Well done, church at Philadelphia. Well done, church at the landing. This door, I take it to be the very gospel, the very entrance into the presence of God. Revelation 4.1 makes that plain. After this I looked, John writes, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. At first the voice, when I heard it speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. The door is the welcome of Christ. Christ calls himself the door in John 10.9 by which all persons enter into salvation and the presence of God and find pasture going in and out. Jesus is the door. His gospel is the door swung open. He says, to all who will come to me through me, the door, you come to God by me and by me alone. There's no other back door. There's no secondary means. There's no climbing over the fence. To reject the door of Christ is to say, I have no interest in God. I desire to not spend time in God's presence. I don't have any interest in all that he offers or his promises, and I am sober to say you will have exactly what you desire. I love how Christ addresses this faithful church as weak. They're not faithful because they're virtuous or strong or hardworking or morally upright or, or uh, obedient in their own strength. No, 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 they're weak And in their weakness, they simply collapse before the Lord and say, Lord, cause us to remain faithful to you. I believe, help my unbelief. Don't let anyone ever look to you as if somehow you are the source of your strength. If God does anything good through you or me, it's his honor and glory that should be exalted, not us. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, Psalm 115, verse 1. If I ever let anybody get the impression that I'm a strong person in the Lord, then they, whether they realize it or not, have have to decide whether they want to become a follower of mine. But if you and I can carefully and diligently and persistently say, not to me, not to me, but to God give the glory, others will finally and eventually see It's Christ who gives us strength. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But through Paul, he also said, through Christ, you can do all things because he strengthens you. You see, this church in Philadelphia was opposed. That's why they are weak and they have little power. That's why it was so important that they kept Christ's word and didn't deny his name. There was temptations for this fledgling church to quit talking about the Bible. Aren't you embarrassed of the Bible? Surely they asked him. Just as people today would say, if they read verse by verse, phrase by phrase, every single thing in here, they would ask, aren't you embarrassed that the Bible talks that way? Not in the least. Praise his name. We didn't deny his name. What name? The name of Jesus Christ. The name before which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and earth and under the earth. That name. Not just the name of God to be misunderstood and confused as the God of all the other religions. No, no. The name of God, the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. That's the name that we will not deny. Jewish persons sought to to slam synagogue doors against these free Christ followers. 
Christian church was small and powerless and marginalized. It, it had no influence in this great Greek city that sought to be the new Athens. No political or cultural sway. But still the believers gathered together and they read what they had of God's word in the first century. And John, by the angel in the power of the Spirit, speaks the very word of Christ to them. Well done. Well done. What Christ delights in in the landing and in me is not my strength. Oh, it's so freeing to just say I'm weak. I'm broken. I'm tired. If I, if I wake up a Christian tomorrow morning, it's not because I'm a really smart person with good habits. It's because God is keeping me. Let's cling and prize and teach to each other every phrase out of Christ's word as they did. Let's exalt his name and embolden one another to say the name of Jesus Christ without apology and without fear. I think we're entering into a time, maybe you do too, in the United States where it will be dismissed as mentally deficient and ridiculed and persecuted to stand for every phrase of God's word and to stand for the truth of God's word and its values in every way. It will be denounced, it will be marginalized, and it will be rebuffed. And yet, will you, will I, will we together stand firm? Oh God, cause this church to stand firm. Cause the churches that are gathered today, right now, under the smiling face of his favor, where his name is exalted and his gospel is proclaimed, would those churches as well join us in remaining faithful to the gospel of Christ in every phrase of his word, knowing one day every knee will bow and confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Four promises he gives them to motivate them. These are incentives. Look at how generous he is with his promises. We already know he's God and he holds the key of David to keep these promises now let's look at them before we end our time. First, I will vindicate you before your enemies. Verse 9, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. I have loved you. Philadelphia, church at the landing, I've already loved you. I've already loved you. You are right now loved by me and the people who have shut their doors, the Jews who run the synagogue have shut their doors saying you are rejected by God, not a part of the Israel of David, not Abraham's offspring and not welcome in heaven. Christ says there's going to come a day when there's a great reversal they're going to find these Jews who are lying about their own identity that they're not serving God the Father, but they're serving their father who's the devil. They're a synagogue of Satan. They're the ones who say, you have no place in the Jewish kingdom of David to you Christians, yet in a flash of heart-sickening discovery, they will discover these who are ethnic Jews proud in their law-keeping will be outside the kingdom of David, and you Gentiles who believed in Christ for your salvation, you'll be the ones who are the true Jews of Israel. They will look at their building and find it's a synagogue not of God, but of Satan. Is that too strong? In John 8, Jesus said to the Pharisees who trusted in their own law-keeping, your father is not Abraham, but the devil. 
This great reversal happens as a promise. Jesus is saying one day that everybody who opposes you and persecutes you, they're going to come and bow before you. They're going to come and bow before you. Listen to how Jesus, I believe here, is quoting Isaiah 45. I agree with those who see Isaiah 45 behind Christ's comments. Verse 14 of Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush, the Sabaeans and men of stature shall come to you and be yours. So there's the picture. Gentiles are going to come to faithful Jews back in Isaiah 45. They shall come to you and be yours. They shall follow you and shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. But then there's this reversal that stuns. It, it stretches your brain to think of what happens. This verse is now applied not to ethnic Jews having all the Gentiles bow to them, but he applies it to the Gentiles who are trusting in Christ, true Jews, and the ethnic Jews bow to them. What a shocking, stunning reversal to those who trust in their own works for salvation. Jesus holds out public vindication for this fledgling expression of his bride at Philadelphia, and he holds it out for us as a church as well. I don't know of any specific persecution that we have coming to us, not by anyone in particular, but what I do know is that if God has any hardships ahead for you as a person, or for me, or for my family, your family, or this church family, he will vindicate us in the end. He will make it worth it, and we will say none of it was wasted. The second promise and incentive he gives for the Philadelphian church and us to be faithful is, I will protect you from the coming hour of trial. Look at verses 10 and 11. Because of you have kept my word about patient endurance, so they've already patiently endured under the persecution they received, and they kept his word. The key word there is kept. I will keep you, see how Jesus repeats the word, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. You see, he said, I've already loved you. That's what he means by this crown. They already have the crown. You're a believer in Christ. You've already got your crown. You don't need to go out into the Olympic Stadium and fight for it. You already have your crown because Christ won it for you. It's a reference to your eternal life. But he charges them to hold fast. Why? Because there's tribulation coming. I think it was in that time. I think it was since that time. And I agree with those who say it's going to come to a climax when it covers the whole world. It's a time of trial. A time when those who are white hot in their love for Christ will find it cool if it isn't genuine. A time of trial where those who have only dabbled or played games and not come before the Lord with genuine hearts will fall away, Matthew 24 says. In John's time, after John's time, in our time and in the times ahead, we're promised from the whole witness of Scripture that tribulation and trial will come. Christ prays the exact same phrase in John 17, 5 in his high priestly prayer recorded by John, the same author here, as he speaks to the Philadelphian church. See if you can hear it. John 17, 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil ones. Same exact phrase as I will keep you. 
from the hour of trial. Christ is praying for us. He prays in his high priestly prayer, not that we would be taken out of the world, but that we would be kept in the middle of it. Over and over throughout the history of the scriptures, Christ keeps his beloved ones, whether through a flood, whether through war, whether through evil kings, through slavery, through famines, and on and on. Listen to the way he instructed us in Matthew 24, preparing us for these very same days. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's the whole fast year crown. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. I know of a church far away from here. I know of a pastor who has been falsely accused within the last month. Several in the church are believing false accusation about him. Even some of his leaders are turning against him. The joy of the church, the white-hot love they had for Christ, seems to be under threat at the moment. I believe and am confident that the wise leadership of the Holy Spirit and the gifts given to this pastor and godly people in the church will see them through this difficult time. But when I read this passage, I realize that no church should ever think of itself as immune from Matthew 24 happening to us. We should strengthen one another. We should encourage one another. We should say, let's stay strong in the word and loving the name of Christ so that false prophets and those who seek to lead astray will have no voice among us whatsoever. No voice. That our love for Christ, which is white hot, never grow cool. And that we help one another endure to the end and be saved. Christ promises that to the church at Philadelphia. He promises that to this church. Third, he says, I will make you a temple pillar. Verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Conquering, believing in Christ implies that we're a pillar. But we're told in Revelation 21 and 22 that there is no physical temple. So what does he mean by a pillar in the temple of my God? Well, you can go back to the Solomonic temple and, and you might remember that there were two pillars there. Each had a name. One was Jachim and the other was Boaz. I didn't name a pillar Boaz. I like the name Boaz. I named a dog Boaz one time. It means strength. You're going to be a pillar in God's Human temple, the temple of his dwelling place. The new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem is a, is a human uh, wrought structure, not made with human hands, but it's made of human beings who've been baptized, sanctified, and saved to the uttermost. Revelation is clear that one day the new heavens and the new earth will arrive and we will be the centerpieces in it. We will be the named pillars in them, never to be shaken by an earthquake, never to be toppled or removed. You can go to Philadelphia today and you can see the leaning, crumbling, uh, broken down ruins of the pagan temples and the Jewish synagogue. But oh, how strong and immovable you and I will be as pillars in the temple of our God. Finally, verse 12, the second half, 
Christ promises to Philadelphia that I'm going to give you my name. Second half of the verse, and I will write on him the name of my God, Yahweh, the name of life. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. You are the new Jerusalem, you'll bear that name, which comes down from heaven, my God out of heaven. And my own new name, what name? The Holy One, the True One, the name I gave you at the beginning. That's what I'm writing on you. You are clothed with me because you are in me and united to me. So my name, the Holy One, the True One, is now your name, the Holy One and the True One. The stunning names that cause us to bow at Jesus' feet as the second person of the Trinity, the Holy One, the True One. He says, these are names I write on you. This is a glorious doctrine. This is the removal of all the lies and the accusations and the curses and the names that were set against the Christians in Corinth, or rather in Philadelphia. How many curses have been labeled on you? What names have been called you that are identity setting and evil? How have you been confused? How have you been held back? How have you been diverted away from the glory of God in Christ and his calling and mission upon your life? Because you have given an ounce of attention to names and curses that have been leveled against you. You can see across your family and across your circle of friends and online, you can see in this church family and in me and in you, a God-given desire to discover our identity, a beautiful thing, a right and holy and good thing. We can, by use of all means and methods, family, education, engaging in Military efforts, art, religion, business. Every worthy, honorable pursuit can help define and inform our identity. But they all leave us empty at the core of our being. Ultimately, we were made to be securely identified in Christ and in Christ alone. Everything will fail at defining our identity until we find our identity truly and fully in Him. And we realize He puts His name on me. That's when I discover who I truly am. You can see when people are willing to harm their own flesh, to engage in practices that are essentially prolonged suicide, to ingest and eat or drink to engage in illicit sexual activity, to endure or perpetuate violence, to try to change the design of biology and God's design in nature with regard to male and female, to engage in any form of rebellion against any kind of good order that God has put in place just to feel like there's some clue to their identity. While you might... Grieve deeply over the acts that are being done in our culture today to find identity. Surely you can, with a kind heart, understand the pursuit to find out who one is. One of the greatest hopes that Christ holds out to Philadelphia and to this church and to believers around the world, and then we believers to everyone on the planet, no matter what they've done, no matter what's been said about them or lied to them or cursed upon them, find 
your identity in Christ. Be established in him. Let his name be yours and own it. Love him fully in order that you might love others as is suitable and fitting. Find your identity in him. Not even in your marriage. Not in your children. Not in your parents or grandparents. Not in your pastoral ministry or your being an officer in the church. Find your identity in Christ. That's the answer Christ gives to the church at Philadelphia. That's the answer ultimately that's offered by the living Christ to a fledgling church that's going to go through suffering. Tribulation is coming. It's coming for this church as well, is it not? Are we going to turn back to Revelation 3, 7 through 13 and say, Lord, make us like Philadelphia. Make us so eager to keep the word that we can be assured that you are holding us fast even as we are holding fast. And that in holding fast, we hang on to the love and the crown we already have. We have to strive to earn nothing from you. It's already been given by grace. The deepest answers to the struggle of suffering in the human life are found right here in God's word and chiefly right here in this precious passage where Christ says, everyone needs to see how much I've loved you. Let's pray. Only a fraction of what's here in this passage, Lord, have we pondered. Yet I trust that you have been willing by the fire of your spirit to take the kindling of my dry and dusty efforts and light it into a fire of light and heat and power for your precious ones here gathered today. I would yearn for nothing other than for every person in the hearing of my voice to know I am loved and cherished by a great Savior. Lord, I thank you so much for the faith family at the landing. I thank you so much for the power of Revelation 3, 7 through 13 to pierce our souls and strengthen us in him. I thank you for the outpoured Holy Spirit and I thank you for the joy that wells up in us when we hear Jesus speak such well-done approval over us. Now, Lord, in the ways that you will continue strengthening the identity of your beloved ones in your word and the way that you will draw those who are hearing this and saying, I, I don't think I've ever tasted that deep of a settled peace in my soul. I've been wondering who I am all these years. God, would you minister in wonderful, powerful ways by your Holy Spirit hovering over the people in this room and in their hearts? Would you draw to yourself those who have been beaten up by the so-called religious establishment and say, I'm the one who shuts and opens doors and I've got the key of David and I've already loved you. They'll see that. To the tired, would you strengthen and equip them with your eyes of fire and your promise to know the future in detail and, and rule over it? To the confused, would you give them a, a riveted, laser-like fix on your face? If I could just see Christ, 
all the fog will blow away. Lord, do a hundred things beyond what I know to ask or imagine through your word. Now, as it settles in and begins to marinate over our lives and sweeten and strengthen and make us all the more savory to you and to each other and to the world. I ask it in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen. Let's respond to God's word.